You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org American Theatre is published by Theatre Communications Group, TCG, and uh, it's the nonprofit uh, uh, membership organization for the American Theatre. Uh, if you join, you can get a subscription to uh, American Theatre Magazine as well as all the other services TCG offers. Um, I would just want to plug one thing. This uh, exciting panel, top topic, there was a wonderful piece we did in the uh, October 2016 issue called The State of the Play, also by Helen Shaw. Highly recommend it. It's still relevant. Uh, it's worth reading. Um, without further ado, I want to introduce our wonderful panel tonight. Um, to discuss the, the state of the new play, we don't just have playwrights. We have a playwright director, Robert O'Hara. Uh, who uh, is uh, best? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he started out directing the, in the Continuum Brothers Sister plays, Wild with Happy, uh, and Bella in American Tall Tale. And then his own plays, uh, just down the street, uh, Mankind, Booty Candy, and uh, Insurrection Holding History. Um, we also have a playwright, uh, Lucas Nath. You know from places at Dolls House, House Part Two. Currently, he's in previews with Hillary and Clinton. He's taking the night off to come here from a preview of his play. Uh, and he came directly from Humana, where they're in tech. Uh, they just uh, not tech a production of the Thin the Thin Place. Is that the, yeah. Okay. Then we also have a former agent and now associate artistic producer, Alexis Williams, who's a playwright from. <laughs> Playwrights Realm is the home of such plays as The Moors, The Wolves. The Rape of the Save by a Woman by Grace B. Mathias and others. Um, and uh, she was at Brett Adams before. You saw the bottles all here. I'm just sort of giving the highlights. And of course, we have uh, also a director who's associated with new plays and new musicals, Lee Silverman. Mm-hmm. And uh, just, just this season, she directed three new plays A Lifespan of a Fact on Broadway, Wild Goose Dreams at the Public, and currently running Hurricane Diane at New York Theater Workshop. Without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Jenna Henry, the literary manager of the signature. Thanks for coming. Hi, welcome. Thanks, Rob, for that intro, and thank you all so much for being here, and thanks to our panelists. Um, so you've joined us this evening to have a conversation about the state of the play, and it's a little absurd to try to define an era while we're currently living in it, but we're going to try to do some of that this evening. Uh, it does feel like we are at kind of a unprecedented or particular moment in time right now as it go, uh, regards with shifts in theater that are going on, and so tonight we're going to talk a little bit about you know, some of the plays that have made waves in the off-Broadway scene over the last couple years, or even if we're thinking about... Broadway and kind of the changing or evolving idea of what is commercially viable seems to be changing at, uh, at a rapid speed, and the landscape that we're currently living in doesn't seem to look anything like it did 10 years ago. And so we're going to talk about the what and the why of that, and then also get a little bit into the how, like how can we support new work and how can we develop new projects. Um, and we're graced by these wonderful panelists who are at the forefront of this change, uh, both as creators and facilitators of new work, and I'm so thrilled that they've joined us for this. And so I'm just going to start us off like really briefly uh, with a very broad question. We're going to talk amongst ourselves for a first half of the evening, and then we're going to open it up to questions from you all, um, so be prepared. Uh, and so to start, uh, we're just going to go down the line um, and have our panelists all kind of attack this very bro- intentionally broad question of what are the trends that we're currently seeing in playwriting these days? Alexis? 
I feel like these days I'm seeing more things that are pushing forms, both in content and aesthetic and style. I feel like I'm seeing things that are leaning sort of more away from the like well-made play, or if it is leaning into that, something that's like, I don't know, pushing hard um, politically or societally um, on issues. Um, I think we're seeing plays that are engaging more directly and almost like confronting um, audiences more, so asking audiences to be able to lean in a little bit more to the shows that are out there. Um, yeah, less things that seem like, oh, this could just be a TV show or a movie on stage and things that are really embracing the form of theater and the theatricality of it. I, I, I sometimes feel like I'm not too tapped into what's going on just because I... I um... Uh, you know, I sometimes go into my own writing bubble, which sort of means I step out. But it was interesting, just coming back from the Humana Festival where, where, I, where I did a play, um, I realized that of the five productions, three of the plays, not musicals, three of the plays had choreographers. And that seemed kind of interesting because in, in, in those three instances, they were uses of choreography that were non-literal, they were more abstracted. It wasn't like you had a moment where, okay, here's the ballroom dance scene. <laughs> they were more abstract uses of movement. And, and then you have my play, which had no choreography, but had, uh, it, it, as part of the production team, a magician. So I think maybe a trend that's starting to happen is that the collaborators who participate in making the play is perhaps growing and the institutions are creating space for that and the playwrights are creating space for that work to happen in the room. I think um, uh, one, uh, I mean, of, of course I haven't seen all of that, I also noticed uh, the sort of relationship that playwrights are having to uh, the canon. For instance, your dolls have, so that there are a lot of now conversations that people are writing uh, to things that have been in the canon and that we have sort of held on to and that we're sort of ripping apart in a way and reattaching uh, in, in various interesting ways. So I find that to be exciting. And also um, uh, denying the idea that there is a fourth wall. Uh, I think that playwrights are not necessarily starting with the idea that there's you and then there's us up here, but that there is an experience that I want to give you. Uh, and an event that I want to take on as opposed to come sit in the dark and uh, be removed from uh, what is in front of you. I feel like actually the trend that I have been feeling is that people want to go to theater. Um, <laughs> maybe it's just me, but I think maybe it's uh, we're living in just such fucked up times that like there sort of feels like there's um, fire under everybody. And I think that there's a greater um, sense of um, interest in expanding um, the repertoire of what is American. And, you know, it's about time, and, um, and it's taken the country teetering on, you know, disaster. <laughs> Boy, I'm like just like a mix of good news, bad news right now. But um, but like I I do think that it has made theater really um, vibrant. It has made the I think this season, last season, um, more vibrant, more necessary. People I think are hungrier to understand um, 
how to live in this current moment, and I think they're also craving um, community. So there's my good news, bad news. That's great. Yeah, it's, it seems kind of almost impossible to not think that there is a connection between this shift that we're seeing, the changes in theaters, and our current political landscape, um, and kind of the seismic shift of the country. And one of the things, and I think guys all kind of had a similar, especially what Robert has just said about the fourth role, that things seem, seem to be changing dramatically with as they relate to our, our audiences and like what an audience is and not necessarily thinking of audiences any longer as a monolith when we say like how an audience will respond. And so I'm wondering if any of you would like to speak to like specifically how that relationship feels like it's changing. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've always had a particularly uh, different relationship with audience because I, I've always thought that like, you know, um, I've said this a lot that when I work, I sort of create a, a, a bus or a vehicle, and you're welcome to get on it. Uh, uh, but you can't get on it and tell me to slow down. Or you have to get on the bus or get off the bus. You can't get on the bus. But can you just deliver me at my home and make me comfortable while you do it? It's like, no, you come into a play written and composed and created by these individuals. So this is the ride. Take the ride or leave. But don't take the ride and expect us to make you comfortable. You have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, because my job is not to make the audience comfortable. No one is invested in making me comfortable. So why should I create a that is invested in making an audience comfortable? Uh, there are so many different things out there that you can go to to make your life comfortable. And I don't particularly uh, feel the need to provide that. <laughs> like I'm seeing more and more, not a ton, but a little bit more and more um, institutions kind of inviting the audience to to participate, to make noise, to, to shout, to, to, to cheer on. Like I was at opening of Pretty Words, um, and I mean there was an insert where it's like this is not a silent spectator sport. If you are seeing something and it moves you and it shakes you, like respond. You can be vocal. You can, you know, partake. I mean, we think about that the, our traditional ideas of audience decorum were literally invented to keep people out, and that feels like a specific thing that we're kind of breaking down. I'm seeing that more and more, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll toss this over to Lucas and kind of single you out since you're in the midst of rewriting and playwriting and all these things. What feels like particularly influences that you're, you're absorbing these days, or what are kind of going on in your mind of, of uh, as you produce new work? <laughs> Just like in in your current state as a uh, uh, where you're writing right now, like what do you find yourself being influenced by? So yeah, I mean it's an interesting question because right now I'm in the middle of production, which is sort of the space where I'm not as much being uh, uh, influenced by anything as is I'm 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 being I'm I'm seeing the thing up in front of me and and dealing with what it is and listening to the work that's happening and and uh, in conversation with the actors about what their needs are. Um, so, but I don't know, like, I mean, prior to that, in the, in the generation process, uh, I mean, I'm constantly consuming 
I mean, no, even this morning I woke up and I read an article about Carol Gilligan in the New York Times, and I was like, oh, shoot, I need to buy some of her books. So I just bought two of them and started reading them on the subway, thinking about, oh, gosh, there's something that Carol, Carol, Carol Gilligan, I remember her saying, and I want to read about that because maybe that might influence one line in, in Hillary. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just whatever is coming at me. I mean, I've spent the past uh, two months... Uh, or so, listening to all sorts of podcasts on the occult, um, because I just I just opened a, a horror play, and so I'm going down this weird path of, you know, if if I listen to a podcast about, um, you know, some guy complaining about why uh, universities don't have um, departments of the paranormal, then he'll mention some weird political commentator he's obsessed with. Okay, so I'm going to go read everything about that person. So I'm going down these weird chains that, I mean, so it's everything. is And, and, and I don't know, like it, it's all at the service of a question that I think is always at the center of my head and plays, which is um, how do you know what you know, and do you really know that, and are you sure you know that? And, uh, so that's, that's where my head is. Yeah, and to harken back to what you were saying about the plays at Humana uh, having choreographers in it, and something that I think several of you mentioned in the first question, is I think to a large degree it feels like the form of theater itself is kind of, for lack of a better term, on trial a little bit, or is part of the examination. And I don't want to give away for our next panel on musical theater a little bit, but thinking about, like, can we even define what a play is anymore? Is it what? It, what is it like to be breaking down these lines? Maybe I'll toss that over to you, Lee. Of what, like, does a play even feel like it's just people in a room talking anymore? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, both Wild Goose Dreams and Hurricane Diane, I had a choreographer and a music director and original composition and direct address to the audience and. Uh, and they're both really weird. So I think that um, the, the, you know, and by weird, I mean like that's, I'm into that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I guess I think that um, it's exciting to think that we're um, thinking more porously about work in general and how we make work, devise work, um, uh, I think that um, something that I have felt shift also is that people are more interested in people doing all kinds of things. So, like, the idea of being a writer-director doesn't feel, I think, this, like, so, um, like, uh, that there's only one or two people who are allowed to, like, be a hyphenate. I think that there's many more opportunities um, now, I, I used to feel like people were very resistant to that idea, like they really wanted to pigeonhole you as one kind of, um, in one discipline, and so I'm really excited about that. Um, and I think that there's also um, a, a, a deeper appetite um, for, um, uh, for, for like, I, I think that people are, are more flexible uh, hopefully, when you talk to them about a project and you say, um, oh, I, I definitely need um, a, a choreographer, I need a composer, and that doesn't take the idea of producing that play off of the table. And I definitely felt like 10, 
years ago or something when I would talk about projects and I would say like, I need this additional staff and people would be like, Ooh, you know, we're, too, we're really interested in like a four character play and we don't want any other people. And now I think it's sort of a little bit become like, who else do you need to support what you need to do at some theaters? And I really appreciate that movement because I think it makes the work better and more interesting um, for, for all of us in a way. Um, one of the, the things that I think we have to talk about in this context is theater has made some strides over the last couple years. We can make bigger strides and be better about rep having the diversity on our stage represents the diversity of the world that we're living in. And yet I can't seem to get away from this idea that our, the small steps that we have been making are part of the reason that we're seeing a change in content along with representation. I wonder if any of you guys can speak to maybe some themes or ideas, but how um, our increase in diversity seems to be changing, like what kind of theater we're producing as well. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I, there are just more pieces that are, that are being created without the, not for like the white gaze, for lack of a better way to phrase it, but where it's like, this is a story that I want to tell, and I'm telling it outside of what the white gaze on it is going to be. Um, and everyone can come and witness and watch, but, you know, I feel like more creators are creating things. Um, yeah. I, I, I agree, and I think that the challenge is because when you're creating work that is outside of, sort of, as you said, the white gaze, but then you have the people producing the work as white gazers. <laughs> uh, it's a challenge to add the rigor that is necessary for the play to not just be an anomaly. Uh, and I find that there's a lot of uh, support for the outrageous uh, inside of a building that was not necessarily used to that, but I don't know if they're actually demanding the rigor. And, and that to me is scary. Um, because then you sort of like just become this sort of thing that I don't want to talk to or give a note to or challenge because I feel like I, my gaze is not the gaze that you need on this, right? And yet you're running shit. So it's like <laughs> you have to be able to live inside the power that and privilege that you have and also continue to demand the rigor and intellect. Uh, dexterity that the work requires so that it becomes not just uh, a play, but a career. Yeah. Can I just add to that amazing thing that Robert said, which is just to say that I think until there are um, uh, more women, and but more specifically more people of color who are making decisions um, at theaters and both, um, I mean it's happening more and more off-Broadway, but commercially, um, it's, uh, it really won't change. You know, I think we feel change off-Broadway, and I think we feel it off-off-Broadway, and I think we feel it regionally, but we definitely don't feel it in the commercial sector, and that's because the people who are still in charge are still the same people. And until that center changes, it will stay the same. Yeah, I think of, like, you know, the, the amount of white gay men we had on Broadway this year, I mean, you had angels, you had... Uh, 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 boys in the band, and you had um, 
Harvey Feinstein's play. And I was just like, there's too many white gay people. Do we need more white gay people, men, or particularly white gay men, on, and their struggle at being white and gay? And male. Like, it, do we really need that many conversations about it? And to some people, that's diversity. But to me, it's just more white folks on stage. You know, so it depends on who is actually, what does diversity actually mean, you know. Um, because I look at, where's the, the white lesbian on Broadway? You know, it, it, there was just a lot of that happening. And it's like, it's wonderful, um, but, you know, once again, it's who's in charge of that gaze, even if you're changing it and making, I mean, touch on, you know, and those plays, being on Broadway is very important, but... I was just overwhelmed by it. <laughs> it was too much. Robert, can you hear something you just said about demanding the demanding rigor of the administrators and those um, supporting work? What is, can you get more specific about what that would look like? I just feel like, you know, people who sort of like have been feeding their audiences peanut butter and jelly and they bring in, you know, a grapefruit and, and, and they think that, you know, the people who have been fed on peanut butter and jelly are going to just laugh up this grapefruit. And if they don't, then you'll toss out the grapefruit and get a peach and put it, you know. It just feels like if you don't build the audience for the show that's coming and doesn't look like the rest of your theater, then it doesn't work. It doesn't help. And if you're too afraid, if you just let someone be different and be outrageous and be courageous and alternative without having them also produce good theater and have a dramaturgical rigor to it, then it doesn't do a service to anyone, you know. And I, I find that I mean, there are many, many amazing young artists who are having their work done in the city. And I have questioned from the beginning if the theater is actually invested in that artist as, a, as an artist and not just as this is an interesting play uh, that I have never seen and that is weird and strange and, and crazy. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like it's happening with folks that are younger and younger and younger, um, which is, you know, to, to that point, too. Um, yeah, but the, I feel like there are those institutions where it's just folks don't feel like they can voice those, give notes, where there are notes that will improve the play, but depending on the perspectives, you know, some feels like they can't. Yeah. Um, and also, to your point of... of, you know, you've been getting PB&J and there's a grapefruit and trying to bring audiences, I would also say, like, and continuing to, to nurture and cultivate those audiences for not just like that grapefruit show, but like to continue not just to be like, you got your grapefruit show, great, cool, go away, we don't need to see you again, but to, yeah. You have to mix it up. This is a great segue to one of the questions that I always love and yet I'm afraid to ask is um, how do we support the building of new work? And you know, I feel like whenever there's any panel discussion where we talk about how can we support new artists and new work and make adventurous work, um, some common themes come up. And you know, one of the things uh, that I think all administrators struggle with is it's not like we have a secret door where we keep secret money behind. And we're like, oh, you mentioned that you need more rehearsal time. We go into the secret vault. So. Um, Let's let's have a nitty-gritty conversation about like what do artists need to support new work? Like what is what are the the um, specifics of that, and how can we best do it? I mean, one thing I would say, particularly to new work that is 
breaking forms that is more theatrical where you have other collaborators in the room. I feel like for things where it's like, this is a music stand read. It's a 15-hour reading or a 29-hour reading, and you've got actors at these stands where they're going to read, and you can sort of see how things are working and hear it with an audience. You know it's not production ready yet, but like, you know, seeing those responses, it's helping in your rewrite process or whatnot. It's tricky for pieces that where, it's, where, where you're not going to get a sense of what the artist is work like what the, the goal of the project is just from actors in a music stand. And there are lots of like codes and rules of unions for like what you can and cannot do. Um, so I feel like that's a tricky thing that like how, how to support things in that developmental space and be able to share it with audiences, developmental audiences to see how it's working when there are kind of handcuffs that exist because they're based on old models. I mean, I feel like the question's kind of a trap because um, <laughs> I feel like every, you know, acknowledging that every project is a snowflake is kind of what happens, right? So every play is different. So the process for every play is different, and the process of building that show is different. So there are some shows that I feel like I work on that require a ton of development, and then there are others that don't. And even within one author who I've worked with over and over again, the process is different. So, so I think that, a, you know, part of what's difficult about this question is that it presupposes that each, not only that each time is somewhat the same, but that there's a kind of way to do it. And I think it's one of the things that's hardest about sliding into a season. So I followed Robert's amazing production of Slave Play at New York Theater Workshop with Hurricane Diane. Those plays could not be more different. Um, and what we needed was, I would imagine, completely different than what Robert needed. And the so it's like, in a way, what we need is to, at least personally, is to not feel like we're next. They needed X, so we need X. And I think that that is one of the things, because it's so demanding on an institution it's so profoundly unfair to an institution that is trying to produce as many shows as possible. And so I think that it's one of the things that is, um, that's, there's like a good um, conversation there. So I guess my answer would be that there has to be um, rigor brought to and conversation and honesty, true honesty brought to how does this show need to go from this moment to production and be willing to say, oh, you guys need for 29-hour workshops because the work won't get done, okay. And then they also need to be able to hear when you say, you know what, we just need to get into rehearsal because we can't workshop it anymore because it's like, you know, it's not going to make it. We just got to learn it. They got to learn it. They got to stand up. And they got to rehearse it. You know, and like that's the only way that the show is going to get good is you just have to rehearse the hell out of it. And so I do think that there's there's a requirement on the theater's part for flexibility or a desire for me, for them, to be flexible and nimble, which I think is like when you think of not-for-profit institutional theater, those are not the adjectives that might come to mind. But, um, but I do feel like that's, that would be the answer for me. I mean, I also think some of this does kind of fall on the playwright a little bit to say more about what they need. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I participated in this this um, several month long uh, writers group thing not too long ago, and there was it, it, it had, there was this pattern where 
the writers would bring in 20 pages every week, hear them out loud with actors, and then ask the room, so what did you think? And I don't know why everybody was doing that. There was no reason why you had to use your 20, 30 minutes that way. And uh, I would ask the other writers, did you get anything from that, really? And it's like, oh, you know. <laughs> and so I decided, no, I'm just going to come out. I know I have 30 minutes, so I'm going to structure this as an open rehearsal. I'm going to hear these five pages ten times, <laughs> you know, and I'll tweak it. Not ten times, but yeah, I'll hear all these five pages over and over, and I'll make tweaks every time, and I'll get some work done today. Um, but I do think, I, I think, I think the, the writers need to snap out of the kind of passivity in terms of, well, that's how it's done, that's how we have to do it. And sometimes you can ask for something that doesn't actually cost more money, it's just a different format. And I found that theaters have really always been very open to, oh, yeah, you want to do that? Okay, let's try it. Um, I, I've, I've encountered very little resistance there. And uh, uh, so this has been the thing I've been encouraging my colleagues to do is just, you know, tell people what you need. And then, then you can have the conversation. All right, before we open it up um, to questions from you all, I just want to have everyone, if they want to, take a moment and talk about any like really exciting voices that we should be paying attention to? You can also plug your own work during this moment. Uh, please do. Um, but who, who, or what are you guys excited for right now in the current state of play? Well, everyone should come to the Playwright Realms Inc. Festival. Um, we have four, um, uh, four early career writing fellows. They spend nine months with us and. The, uh, the Ink Festival is the, our time to share their work with, with audiences. Um, so they each have readings of their plays. It's April 15th through 18th. So they're lovely. That's my, my plug. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a playwriting professor at NYU, so I have to tread carefully <laughs> and just say that anybody who I name, I'm, anybody who I don't name, I'm sorry. Um, no, I, I mean, I'll just, I'll say some names of people that I think are interesting who I feel like people may not know about. Um, Stacy Rose is a really exciting writer who's now getting some real attention, just won the Barrington. Uh, uh, theater Prize. Um, uh, uh, I mean, Will Arbery is an exciting writer. Mona Perneau, Sanaz Tusi. Um, these are all writers that you'll be hearing about in the coming year or two. Um, and again, I'm, I'm horrible because I'm just not mentioning so many names. But I'm sorry. Well, I have to add that because I'm lecturing at y'all and I'm not going to mention any names. But I'll, I'll mention the, the play that I'm about to direct, which is uh, written by Aziza Barnes. Uh, and it is called Blacks, B-L-K-S. Uh, and I think it's really exciting and it comes from a sort of place that we don't normally see the black body or black female body particularly. And that is the entire play is about them um, wanting to uh, uh, drink, get high, and fuck, and, and, and have no care whether you like it or not, just being completely and totally in their body and who they are at 20 or something. And so that, I think, is going to be really exciting to see how that fits into the landscape of the stories that we're, we're telling. And also, the sort of uh, playing with the idea of, of their sexuality 
being fluid uh, and almost like a reverse sort of breeze company or or, or a sign belt sort of way. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm just so excited. I don't know how to narrow it down. <laughs> um, all right, guys, we're going to open it up to you all for questions. So just raise your hand, and I'll call on you, and then I'll like synthesize the question back into the microphone so that everyone can hear. Um, yes, right there. Hi. Um, I was wondering what your experience has been navigating gender diversity in rehearsal rooms in particular, especially when the gender of a role might differ from the gender of an actor, and also how you think gender diversity can fit into plays today, since roles and breakdowns are still often so gendered. It's a great question, so I'll just abbreviate it, um, even though I, you projected really lovely, so I think it was good. But um, can some of you speak to gender diversity in the rehearsal rooms both in and also in breakdowns, so in writing cast lists or writing characters and maybe how we're all navigating that? Uh, well, I would just say that I just finished a play um, that was quickly rejected by uh, a <laughs> for commission. Uh, but I deliberately wrote it as non-race specific and non-gender specific. It's also set on a spaceship. Um, so I wanted to find out what that would feel like and also I'm interested in what the director in a particular in a particular theater is how they would populate this outer space craziness with either the same gender many genders transgenders uh, all and, and also how that is added to when you place race and culture on it. So that is something that I'm excited to play with um, as a playwright myself. I mean, this whole casting breakdown thing is a bit of a tricky problem. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I uh, you know, I, I for a while was, there, there, I have some plays where, um, you know, I, I I want the plays to be cast in a, a, a racially open. Like I want I want theaters to to examine a range of possibilities, and um, then when you get into plays that that you, know, you get a play that, that gets licensed by theaters and you're not really involved in those productions, and then somebody shows you a casting breakdown where they start saying this character is going to be white, this character is going to be black, this character is going to, be, and they and like. Don't don't keep it open. Examine some more possibilities, uh, and then I would like you know reach out to those theaters and and shame them, and then there comes a point <laughs> where it's like you know I can't know everything that's going on, um, and you know my my I've, I've I've started a conversation with Actors Equity. Of like, is there a way to kind of enforce some some uh, some some uh, find a way to sort of enforce some of the language of what gets put in the casting breakdown. So it's a conversation that's happening. I don't know that there's a great solution to it right now. Are you finding? I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but are you finding that? Because I know you had African American at all sounds on Broadway, but I'm not seeing that diversity 
and other productions or, are defining that. Or what they do is they cast it exactly like we cast it on in the first Broadway cast, not the second Broadway cast where Stephen uh, Anderson was playing yes. Torvald. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 and it does, it's interesting because you, it places a lot of importance on the New York production and the production photos. And what people see in those production photos, they go out and try to replicate. And, uh, uh, you know, the Christians, I was, I was very active trying to sort of police these breakdowns. Um, and not, and in over my head with Dawson's part too. Um, but, uh, so I haven't been keeping up to date with a lot of what's going on with Dawson's part two. I mean, I know, I know Steppenwolf, you know, did not replicate exactly what we did on Broadway. Um, and, uh, I, there's a, I don't know if any of this has been, I'm probably saying things, but I, 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 I think it's something that, that I don't know that's been publicly announced. I'll just say that there's a production where the director is interested in uh, maybe Torvald not being played by a man. Mm -hmm. You know, they ask for permission, like, sure, see what it's like. It, it changes how the play works, but as long as you're listening for that and respond to it, that's exciting. Let's see what that's like. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, no, it, it's, 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 I, I don't, I don't know what to do about it. I think about this a lot. And I think there's a difference, just to parse the question a little bit, between new plays and plays that have already been done. So, um, I think that in that scenario where a theater or a director comes to you or your representation and says, like, hey, can we try this thing? It's very different than, I think, if the play had never been produced, it was the first production, and some, and the director said to you, Lucas, like, what if we, what if we cast it with a woman? Like, that might not feel as great, you know? Um, I think that in terms of how a play that's never been produced gets made and the decisions that are made versus, like, the next productions, um, you know, just to, to, to say that I think that there's a big difference. And I think that um, understanding how to cast um, a play that is, uh, you know, not yet fully formed is um, the casting influences so much about how that play is going to get made, both because of the people in the room um, and what they bring to it and who they are. And so as a... As, as the person in charge of the casting, you have to take that very, very seriously with, the, with your collaborators in terms of um, not only how is the play going to get made, what is that room going to feel like, whose voices do you have in that room, but then like we do the play and then the next year someone else does it and they replicate it. Um, so, so you are taking, I think, quite a bit of responsibility for that. And you know, I am thinking about this all the time um, in terms of I'm working on a musical right now about the suffrage movement, and um, the author and I have a great um, desire to populate the world. Um, both it's a it's an all female cast, and with um, both um, uh, um, female and and trans actresses, and also to have a very diverse cast. But um, many of the women who were suffragists um, were white, and the issue of how they treated their non-white colleagues 
um, is a problem, and a big problem, and one that we address inside the play. So I can't cast those women. Um, it's not like George Washington being played by Chris Jackson, because um, everybody knows that George Washington was white. Nobody knows the names of these suffragists, so they would, I think, assume that those people were people of color and not white women that we were. So this is like a conversation that I would say that I am like rolling around in my head all the time because how do I both acknowledge what came before and make a new show and also not have an all-white cast and also be enough historically represent, uh, representing history well enough that I can also tell the story inside the show, which is about... Um, a period of time in which um, women who weren't white were excluded from this movement. So, um, but I'm not doing a show with all white people. So, like, that's, you know, I, so, like, I'm constantly thinking about it. You know, uh, I just answer quickly that uh, I don't rarely get asked to do Shakespeare, but the last time, the, the first two times uh, I, I did, uh, I, I cast, I just did Henry V in the public, and I cast a black woman as Henry, and and I also did a uh, um, Scottish play in Denver, and I did an all-male production, and so Lady Macbeth was played by a man. Uh, and in both those cases, uh, in the Henry V, uh, the conversation was, um, am I playing a woman, or am I playing Henry V? And I said, oh no, you're playing Henry V, and I want you to invest in the power of what Henry V had, as opposed to making it something that you're used to. I want you to invest in the, the, the privilege of being a white man that decides, I want France. <laughs> <laughs> like, to invest in that. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, and that was fun. And that's sort of like, it, 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 I didn't say, I, I don't want you to be limited by the gender, I want you to uh, be excited to go into a place that you may not be comfortable or used to, and that's called theater. Other questions? Yes, right there. Uh, we're seeing, I think, an uh, influx of European-directed-driven theater right now, and something I'm noticing with this theater is it's become less about uh, the story and more about the director's take on it. And I'm wondering what you guys, what your opinions is on this, and how going forward, if this, this trend continues, uh, what you see the role of the theater, of uh, the playwright going forward is. So, that's a very interesting question. Um, to synthesize that a little bit, yes, um, can we talk a little, yeah, I guess, about what the role of the director is, especially, I think, in, in older works that are being brought back, but like how we're navigating that dynamic right now? Well, I feel like often when it's happening, it is happening with those older works that are like in the canon that have been established in the way people think they are, and you're having these ultra-esque directors that are, you know, that have their new take on it and they're revitalizing it and reimagining and the like. Um, I mean, I for one still believe that with like with new plays, something where it's like this is brand new, the first time folks are going to see it, like it has not yet happened. There is not an established image in their head of what it will look like. The playwright's kind of key. Um, I think it is very important to to make sure that you're, as, as a director, what one is envisioning and helping portray, like what the playwright is putting out there. 
I think that Lee and I had a, a, the same reaction uh, because we're not being invited to Europe uh, at the rate that they're being invited here. Forever. Never. I've never been invited. Have you been invited? No. They didn't want to Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, I really don't want to get much voice to it myself. <laughs> Yes, right there in the middle. Yeah. Um, hi. I preface this by saying that I recently dropped out of an acting MFA program. So my question is, um, how you think educational institutions can and or should have a role in this conversation? Whether um, you think that programs are effective? It's a great question about, first of all, Mazel Tov, like congratulations on <laughs> living your best life and leaning into that. Um, good job. Um, where, where does the role of educational systems fit into all this? I mean, can I, can I, can I, can I, can I, can I, I feel like, you know, it's really personal. Like, there's no one way. Like, I think we... You know, we all led really different paths. I'm on panels with directors all the time. None of us did the same thing. Some people went to grad school. Some people didn't. Some people didn't even study theater. You know, I think that the the key is staying in it and figuring out what's going to sustain you. And for some people, that is school. Like, that is the community that school provides, structure, um, mentorship, things that people go to school for. And that is an extraordinary experience for them. If that was not your journey or not your journey right now, what are you going to do to give yourself sustainability, right? Because like in theory, you're still interested in doing theater. So it's like, unless you walk out of here and somebody's like, gonna make you a star or whatever, which probably not, it might happen. I'm not gonna say it's not gonna happen, but it might not happen. And if it doesn't happen, what are you gonna do for whatever the next amount of time is, which is, um, could be a very long time. So like, how are you gonna sustain yourself emotionally? How are you gonna sustain yourself so you can pay your rent? And, and how are you gonna continue to find inspiration? And those three things, they will, I think they will come together at some point. But you have to kind of stay in it in order for that moment to happen. And so I think, you know, some people really find other ways. They start theater companies. They, you know, get with their people. They find their tribe. And some people have that happen at school and some people don't. But I think that the way that um, you should be thinking, if I may, is just to say, like, what am I going to do so that I can, I can stay inside of this thing that I want? How can I make that possible for myself? And I think many people find school to be the answer to that, and many people don't. Robert and Lucas, can you guys talk a little bit about maybe what you... Are, what are your hopes for your students, or what are some things that you're stressing to them right now? Um, well, I, yeah, I, I also, I, I, just to sort of continue on something you were just saying, you know, I, I'm on that side of the table where uh, I'm reading admissions applications for playwriting students, and I think part of my job in the assessment and in the interviews with students 
is to try to figure out, oh, can we give you something that you're even looking for? I mean, I encountered last year, uh, reading through stacks of stuff, a playwright that I thought was kind of just crazy brilliant and interesting. And, and then I talked to this writer for a while, and I, as we, I sort of got into talking about process with this writer, and I was like, oh gosh, the way that you work, you're, you're not going to be happy here. <laughs> you're not going to blossom in this particular um, pedagogical form. Um, and so, you know, if I'm doing my job on that side of the table, I'm being very careful not to, I mean, it's best anything, you know, it's divination of some kind, I don't know. Um, but you're, you're making a, the best guess you can. Um, in terms of what I want for my students, I mean, the thing that I'm always kind of stressing is, or this is my new theory that I'll dismiss in a year, is that how you talk to yourself about your play affects how you write the play. And that the more precise your language is in talking about your own play, the more that that's going to open up opportunities. Um, and, and I will also say this could be completely wrong for some people. But, you know, I'm always interested when I'm talking to a student about a scene and I'll say, well, what's happening in this scene? And it was like, well, it's about two people connecting. It's like, what does that word mean? That word doesn't mean anything by itself. So in sort of finding more specific and more varied language to dig into it, um, <coughs> then when you just sort of start a new page and write it again, something new might start happening. So that's my new thing, is just sort of thinking a lot about. I think the, the, the rigor that I can uh, impose that is hard to impose on your own by yourself has something to do with getting finding more language to talk about the things that you're seeing and aspiring to. Uh, one of the things I talk to my students about but is a model that I use, and I've said many times in different panels, is that um, I always say I'm not going to be limited by your imagination. <laughs> um, and, and, and just because... Even, and I say it to myself and to my audience, too. Like, just because I haven't imagined it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And that you can't imagine it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So that you have to actually allow the freedom of something that, as you said, what you don't know to become knowable. And also, uh, another thing that I say to playwriting students is that you shouldn't write the end of the play until you write the end of the play. Because you may think that the play is going down that exit, but it may end up over here. And that's part of the wonderful uh, uh, nature of being a writer is to actually enjoy the process of writing. But if there is so clear set plot points here that you are attaching yourself to, it will feel that way when the audience watches it, mm -hmm. right? So you want the experience of writing it to be the experience that you want the audience to take. And so you have to keep yourself some, uh, some, uh, some part of yourself away from that ending where everyone goes out the door and sings, right? Because it may, mean, it may change that everyone ends up dead inside the room. Um, and that journey that you take to that place is what the audience will experience. Okay, I'm going to take it up to the mezzanine. Are there any questions up there? Oh, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, Thanks. Bear with me on this. Um, it seems to me that um, audiences, which are collections of individuals, um, demand that their stories uh, mean something to them. 
and that that meaning is often sort of articulated as, um, uh, and then what happened? And the question, and then what happened, is a way of really saying, and what's going to happen next? And the question of what's going to happen next is really informed or intensified by anxiety or trauma. And um, whether the story is a musical that's escapist or a tragedy that really forces one to look at something, either way, it's both a response to the level of trauma and anxiety in a given audience, community, at any given time. And Mr. O'Hara, I'm an admirer of yours, and, and um, uh, so I wanted to just dig a little bit deeper into that, that the, uh, what the, your comment about the, um, the plays last year on Broadway. Um, because I think that um, the AIDS crisis is a trauma that only recently became history. And that's the answer, which I think you know, of why those plays showed up on Broadway in commercial productions in a community where gay white men had some power, um, and, and, and some powerful gay men could put that history on stage for re-examination. Then um, what I wasn't sure when you made that joke was, um, and I know it was a serious joke, um, uh, was if you didn't think that was a good reason or not, especially looking at the arc of how stories respond to audiences, anxiety and trauma over time. I don't think that that was the reason those plays were produced <laughs> on Broadway, frankly. I don't think that anyone said that the trauma of AIDS and gay and being white and gay was why I'm putting this play on Broadway. I think that Broadway is calculated to make money, and white people on Broadway make money, and white men on Broadway make money. And I think that there's a lot, we all got traumas. We all got Holocaust, we all got, you know, all these different things. My story ain't up there three times in a row on three different stages, you know? I'm just as traumatized as anybody else, right? I went through the AIDS crisis like everybody else. Ain't nobody telling them, where's the black folks that had AIDS? Where are the women that have AIDS? Where are all those three, three theaters populated? So there wasn't a joke. It was serious to me that I am tired of seeing that only white male bodies go through shit. I'm not putting anything. I'm putting the commercial theater against what the images that you are telling me I should actually pay you to watch. Because that's a choice that I make as an individual to pay my money to watch something. And if you're telling me that only the suffering of white gay men is what is viable for me to walk down the street and see, then I don't participate in that. And I don't buy it because I know the world exists in a greater form than that. So that's what I meant. You should always ask dynamic questions from the best of you. Just the angles are really are excellent about this. Other questions? Yes. Yeah. It seems like the last few questions have danced around the issue of even getting to the point of NYU or Yale. How we nurture young playwrights in this country based on our financial model mm -hmm. and racial segregation and schools at a very young level. Um, I guess about I guess the question that you know about public funding in certain like Britain or Ireland, where playwrights are nurtured from a, a younger age, in my opinion. Um, do you see that the plays that get even to where you're at now, or have you seen that as you've gone, that the pressure to succeed, to make money, and the plays that get seen, produced, even workshop? 
I'm so, so are we yeah. missing voices out because of that? And how do we change that? I'm so glad you've asked this question because this is my favorite question to honor people. Yeah, we've uh, we've created a system in which only people who can afford to work in theater work in theater. How do we how do we fix it? I mean, it's preventing a ton of plays from being even created, much less programmed, much less designed. All this, um, and I I don't I don't have an answer to how we fix this system. Um, do we have any thoughts though? <laughs> okay. I don't know if I have thoughts on how to how to fix the system, but I was more asking what you see. Well, I I do think that there are. I do think that particularly if one is a writer living in New York, I feel like there are other avenues outside of the world of grad school that the writers can go to to at least get a little more like street cred that will make more people pay attention to them. Like we have our, our, our writing fellowship. Um, all those fellows are paid. Are they paid enough to like support themselves in New York for a year? No. But like, you know, they're, they're getting some money through that. Like, um, the, the public has their emerging writers group, Ars Nova has play group, New York Theater Workshop has their 2050 fellows. I mean, all of these are things where I feel like they succeeded at least putting writers in a place where more people are knowing about them that hopefully might do their work kind of at a point. Um, I actually think it becomes almost trickier for folks that are like just past that early career which is, I mean, I hate that phrase. So I'm like, I, what does emerging mean? Like, there are playwrights that we're still calling emerging, where I'm like, we're like, we're like, sure. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm like, you, you have emerged. Um, um, but like, or you might have someone who's like, just passed like all of those groups, but hasn't like broken yet. I feel like there's actually a dearth in opportunities for them. Or, when somebody's like, yes, I have my a, a world premiere, but it didn't necessarily happen in New York and didn't get a lot of buzz. And, you know, it was a wonderful production in Cleveland and getting that second third production because there's this whole world premiere-itis thing that's a book too. So like, I mean, I, I don't know in terms of the land of, of financial models, but like, I think that for early career writers that are living in New York, which is a small swath of all of the early career writers out there, there are at least organizations where they can become a part of a community and a cohort and where folks where folks might it'll give them a little more street cred for you know people maybe producing them. Yeah, I, I'm 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 increasingly not convinced that that I mean it used to be there's this notion that you had to go the grad school step to birth your playwriting career and I'm increasingly not convinced that that's the case at all. But it is very New York centric, you know, and, and I think about when, you know, I was just, you know, writing, you know, finishing my plays and writing them, the number of places I could have submitted my plays to, I mean, there was, there was not, there was like two things that I could, you know, two places I could send my play. Um, and now there's many, many more, uh, opportunities, but I do, I, I do wonder if um, uh, I, I, I think I think there's a lot of opportunities to people who live in New York, but also the the the, the there's the community of New York that sort of that's the, that's the grad school, <laughs> and that's also financially limiting. 
Uh, but but when you are part of this community and you are uh, uh, meeting colleagues here and sharing work and giving each other notes, that's that the work is growing through that and it gets better through that. And that seems to me to be the the tricky limitation. But there, which also isn't to say there, there are amazing, amazing <coughs> playwriting communities outside of New York. I, I think what I mean is there are these discrete pockets that are very hot in terms of, of feeding writers, and, and then there are places where there may be fewer resources. Other questions? Yes. Uh, I thank you all for being here. This has been great. But um, I saw a play the other day, and I left particularly frustrated or infuriated. I can't say that word right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm trying to say. And it, it begged the question, as a playwright, you're writing for a commercial audience, but you're also writing to entertain. Are you wrestling with one more than the other? How do you manage to put up a play that doesn't necessarily inform or educate and we could all leave and like be happy and like you know I, I, you know what I mean you, you see where my, my it's like I feel like like I'm an actor and I'm a comedic improviser and I think even in comedy my job is to like leave the place better than I found it so how do you wrestle with that like in terms of like the commercial viability of your art but also needing to like say something like your art would live on longer than Bob Marley's still alive you know what I mean like his work is still here and like your work will live on longer than you will so how do you wrestle with these things it's a great question uh, to, I'll try to summarize what you just said so beautifully there but yeah wrestling with these ideas of entertainment and even in, in the off-Broadway scene, commercial viability, like we still have to sell tickets, and also the desire to inform and educate an audience. How are all those impulses kind of mixed together and how do we parse them out? I simply don't. It's too much. <laughs> I can't deal with everybody in this room and what you want to do, how you want to be happy. <laughs> That's not my job. I don't know what that woman behind you likes or what she wants to do with her life after she walks out this door. That is not my job. I got you. So my job is to tell an interesting story and to invest in certain things that I find interesting. And if that is interesting to the half people in the room, fine. I already got your money. You already walked in the door. <laughs> right? You already got on the bus. Right? So my job is actually how can I make this the most interesting journey as possible? Right? Because somebody it's going to be unhappy. It's, it's just going to happen that way. So I, I, and you know, the commercial thing, that's a sort of like, that's a really dangerous thing to go after. You know, I, would you have ever thought that your work was commercial? No, you know, actually it's funny. I was, I was, uh, uh, I was just saying about this the other night, is that uh, an agent, not mine, had read Hillary and Clinton years ago and said, oh, well, this will never get done. <laughs> um, and, and you cannot predict commercial viability. I don't know, even know what that means. Um, yeah, you know, you just, you have to, you have to write the play that you want to see. You have to write the play that you want to see and you can't go see because nobody's written it. And uh, uh, when I'm watching, I'm not watching the audience. I'm trying to do this sort of mind trick of imagining that I've never seen the play before 
and my job is to be the person in the room who knows the least, and I'm just going to try to watch my own play and have an honest response to it, or, or you know, read the play on the page and have an honest response to it and try to make it more the play I want to see. Other questions? Um, yes, right in the center back. Yeah. I'm wondering if I could get the panel to discuss the place of short plays in the larger places of the drama. Oh, that's a that's not a softball at all, guys. The <laughs> length of plays. Um, yeah. Uh, what's awesome. a short play? What's a short play? What? Yeah. How do we? Ten-minute play plays, festivals, short plays. Where does where does that fit in the larger canon? Well, many of my plays have come from ten-minute plays. But I've had a sort of an idea that was only worthy of ten minutes. And then I put it away, and it began to attach itself to other ideas. Um, so that's a part of an exercise for I me. Mean, I, mean, I don't write for ten-minute festivals unless it's like charity or like you're doing some sort of like, you know, 24-hour thing or what have you. But uh, I like it uh, as a personal uh, sort of exercise for me. Uh, and to find out how this uh, an ideal may live uh, in uh, on the page. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to uh, ask uh, specifically. Um, I'm an actor, uh, emerging. I'm still trying to get my voice out there in many ways. Um, but essentially, I want to ask uh, how specifically uh, can theater institutions. Um, uh, prevent uh, artists uh, who come from historically marginalized, marginalized communities from feeling like tokens uh, for relevance or um, uh, for a diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, I think it goes back to the idea of like with the audience itself not representing the work. Um, but I think what part can artistic directors, what can the institutions do to make artists not feel like tokens? For that specifically. That's a great question. Um, yes, what can uh, what can theaters, uh, what can leaders do to make sure that the artists that they're supporting don't feel like a checking a diversity box? Uh, I don't want to take much time, but I'm going to say that I think that one thing they can do is find people that write plays and direct plays and design plays that look like you, right? Uh, so that you have not just you in a room full of white people, right? But that the world around you is also made of diversity, right? Because so often you find that you're the only one in the room, and that's exciting, but at the same time, uh, I think the world outside of the room needs to also be diverse as well. I mean, I know that Lee, we talk about, you know, designers all the time, you know, finding a projection designer of color, or a female projection designer, you know? And if, and if there are, they're already working, you know? So it's finding the people outside to make you not feel like Okay. Yeah, I, the thing is also like, well, like, um, how do we go about getting those people in power? Like, because right now, the majority of the people in power are white people mm -hmm. in general, and so um, how do we transition to getting people who come from very diverse experiences in those places? You know, and, and that's something that's just like for me, I'm, just, I'm, 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 I don't know the answer to. I need more people to figure it out with. You know, <laughs> um, and. That's something I, you know, it, as an actor, I feel like, how can I change that, you know? Um, I'm auditioning for them to put me in a place, you know, and, you know, I'm trying to, you know, so it's, you know, um, 
I mean, I was just going to say, don't wait. Whatever that means to you, don't wait for someone to give you that part. You know, like get with the people that you want to make theater with and make theater and invite people and do it. I think that one of the things that is um, true is that um, it's going to take a minute for the kind of change that I think we all have been talking about to really happen, like systemically, because um, the, I mean, <laughs> um, Robert heard me say this at, a, at another panel at another time, but like, I, I believe that theater has believed itself to be a diverse place, and that is a fantasy, right? So, so a big thing that's happening, hopefully, is that a lot of people are like, oh, I really like diversity, and then they look at their season and it's like, all white people. And then they're like, oh, I really like women. And then it's like, oh, there's not a single woman directing or writing a play here. That's so interesting, right? And, um, and like, that's, that's, I feel like we're kind of in that moment where people are like, oh, 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 yeah, maybe there shouldn't just be all white male designers designing shows, or maybe there shouldn't be all seasons with like one show that's not full of white people, whatever. So I will just say that like that, this process is gonna take a minute, I think. And, and I think the louder that you can be in this moment on your own, it to make your own work, to get your voice heard, keep auditioning, keep doing all the usual things, keep putting yourself out there, but like, we need the revolution. Yeah. And that's not about you showing up at a casting call. That's about you showing up at a casting call and also doing your own thing. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I can't um, say that loudly enough, even though I'm holding a microphone. But like, you know, I just think like that because no one's waiting. No one's waiting for you to come in. And that's true anyway, no matter who you are. No one's waiting for you, particularly. But like this moment of revolution, hopefully, is happening, hopefully, but like, get it going. You're the guy. Yeah, and I know I'm a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, besides the fact that you're a guy. Essentially, it's, I want to be part of the revolution. Yeah, good. Uh, but, um, and I want to write my own stories and be a part of new stories, and I want the audiences to uh, be represented by the stories, and I want the people to go to places where they see themselves and the people in power represented as well. And I'm waiting. It's going to take a while, sure. But, like, where do I take this work? Where does it end up becoming a moneymaker? Where do I take this work? Where do I specifically... Where do I go? You know, like, um, because I want... The conversation to go past in the homes, mm -hmm. and I, I want people to talk about it, and you know, and feel like, wow, I, I feel hurt from that play, and, you know, and you know, I, it's cool to see something like that finally on stage. You know, I just, I don't know. I, 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 did I just make that more confusing. No, that was great, Alexis. What were you about? Yeah, I was going to say, I think the the revolution needs to come. I think there have been some exciting steps. Mm -hmm like taken towards it, like Jacob Padrone, like taking over Long Wharf, um, Maria Guanez down at, um, at Woolley, um, Hannah Sharif at St. Louis Prep, like there are small steps of, you know, 
white artistic directors leaving and being replaced with like some awesome POCs. Um, we still have a ways to go, but I am hopeful that yeah. we'll get there. It's just it's going to take a while. And you know, a, a, a black man has just taken over Actors Theater of Louisville. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and a Latino woman has taken over Baltimore Center Sage. Oh. You know, so there are places that 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 you can go to. There are those places. Um, yeah. Right, and I'll just say, if we want to start the revolution, the bar is going to be open after this, so that's, that's where that's going to happen. Um, yes, right there. Yes, you. Um, I'm wondering what the role of institutions and theaters can be in increasing accessibility for non-traditional theater audiences, because um, I'm an actor and I know who I see when I stand on stage, who I'm looking out at, and stories might be becoming more diverse, actors might be becoming more diverse, but... Personally, I'm not really seeing that a lot in audiences, and obviously Broadway ticket prices are, you know, real fun right now, but I'm wondering what, like, an institution can do. Well, you guys are asking all the hard questions. Um, yeah, the changing, how can we change audiences, and maybe what can the institutions do to help, um, help that along? Well, I think you have to commit to, you can't just give lip service to, you have to have a diverse palette. Uh, and you have to continue to do that. I I said uh, the last time uh, Lee and I were together on a stage. Uh, I said uh, I would love it if if you could get even ten artistic directors to commit to the for the from now until they quit that they will do more plays by women and people of color than not. Right? It doesn't mean not do plays by white people, but to do more plays by women and people of color than not. If you can commit to that, that will change the ecosystem in the theater, right? Because it's not about white folks leaving and making room for people of color. It's about bringing other people into the room so that they can see the world in, in a different way. You know, I always think that my work, it requires diversity. You see my play, and there's a bunch of uh, just white people over 60. It's like, it's dead silence. <laughs> They're like, I don't know if I'm supposed to laugh right now. It's funny, but it's a little bit dark, right? But you put a different generation of different races in there, and some gay folks up in there, and then people are laughing. You're going, why, is, why are you laughing so much, right? And that is fun. I can't laugh. So it allows us to actually live inside the real world as opposed to this imaginary world where we sit on the lights and everyone, everyone's here to entertain us, right? So I think that you have to commit to it. The, the artistic directors have to commit to changing the landscape inside the room. And then the audiences will change. And I don't certainly want all of a sudden to wake up and see no white people in the theater, right? I want to see more people in the theater. I mean, I also wonder if there's room for better collaboration between playwrights and marketing departments. I've I've been noticing a... I've had some wonderful experiences, and I've had some really pretty bad ones where I really wondered if the people in marketing actually read the play. Um, And have sent some strongly worded emails. But that I felt guilty about, but not so much. Um, But... But yeah, I mean, it's and 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 uh, Playwrights Horizons has sort of taken a big step towards 
having more conversations between playwrights and marketing. And, and I don't know, I think there's a lot of room to explore that because I do also think that a lot of storytelling happens in marketing. And too often uh, I'll see a poster that's telling the wrong story. And it changes how you watch the play. It changes the context. Questions? Yes. I just wanted to think about the audience for a second, and, and I think that the problem is we need to find a way to feed the pipeline, and that it starts at an early age. And there's a big problem with arts programs getting taken out of schools and arts funding missing. And I think you have to develop the audience goer, people who love to go to the theater. What you know. Uh, at any level, and you have to develop the interest in wanting to participate in an arts. And I think that's where some of the disconnect might be coming from in terms of the conversation is happening at the artistic level, and potentially the institutions that are hiring the diverse, um, the, the uh, diverse people across the you know to produce the plays or to direct the plays. But I don't think the conversation is feeding going down to how do we get this interest developed at a young age so that the pipeline is, there are people in the shoot who can take them. I mean, I think that a big, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, go No, I was just going to say, I think that, um, that uh, the big, I think the biggest problem is the, well, there are two big problems. One is that, um, the finances of going to the theater, um, is prohibitive to most people. And, um, unless theaters are willing to make a commitment to no matter what's happening with the play, there's 30 seats every night that are $20, that are $15. I mean, it's one of the great things that, that Jim Houghton um, uh, did at the Signature Theater was, you know, this ticket initiative for the plays that were here, every ticket for 10 years for the runs of all the shows was $25. And the audiences here are incredible because there is not that first barrier. So there are many barriers. The other barrier is location, getting to a theater. Um, there are issues around, okay, well, I've never felt like I wanted to go to this theater before because I didn't even know this theater existed. And and so how are they going to know now this audience is going to be like, okay, now I want to come. Yeah, I don't understand. Like there's, there's a lot of different... Um, I think barriers in terms of um, stopping people who wouldn't, who would have interest, um, but uh, either don't know, aren't being directly spoken to. I think partly it's marketing, and it's also partly um, where are people advertising? Where are, um, where is the outreach happening? Who from the theater is in charge of going into different communities and um, being, have starting a conversation? Um, and, and I think this goes deeper beyond just like, okay, we're going to program, um, um, I'll just use Wild Goose Dreams as an example, um, but, uh, which is a play that took place in Seoul, South Korea. So, uh, so like, and then everyone's looking at each other like, well, where, where, where's all the Asian American audience? Where are all the Korean people? You know, like, what? and, and it's like, well, it takes a huge effort and it takes, resources that the theater might not have. It takes energy. It takes commitment. And I think when theaters are willing to do that, um, it, it, it 
the results are, are clear. I mean, um, Young Jin Lee was just telling me who, who wrote this place, Red White Men, that was done um, at the Hayes on Broadway, and she's the first Asian American playwright to be a woman to be done on Broadway, and um, uh, which is thrilling. And, you know, Second Stage made a very big, big investment in making sure that those, um, that there was a big initiative to get younger people into the seats for her show. But that required something on behalf of the theater, as change does. It actually requires something in return for change. And frequently, it's money. <laughs> and I'll just say quickly to your, your uh, point about pipeline, you know, I think, um, for a long time, we also have a really narrow view of what young people can see in terms of theater. Of like, we want them. We are like, oh, here's a nice play with four people talking. And to harken back to the earlier points you all made about like the massively changing form and content, and those feel like some of the things that we need to be getting student matinees for, like the really weird things that are happening right now, and not four people around the dinner table, even though I love those places too. Well, the second most theater for young audiences program has gotten yeah. really good. Really, really they're really doing the Eurocrop yeah. present. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Other questions? I'm going to go, yep, yeah. Nazanin. Um, thank you for the bringing up the second most. That's actually what I wanted to ask. Because it seems like a lot of the conversation is very New York-centric and very much about New York theater. I was in Chicago for 10 years and attended theater twice a week, and it seems the form there is shifting less in the way it is and here in New York, it seems to be more about how things are staged and about you know, all these questions about gender and identity and what does that mean here. Whereas in Chicago, it feels like the state of the play might be a little bit different and more focused on what is the story, what are new stories, new voices. Um, I just went back to see a wake-up at Stephanie mm -hmm. about um, the murders that are happening along the border in Mexico um, of women, which is very powerful play, very interesting, but it's not about gender or race specifically, it's about these are characters that are something specific in this county important about it. I'm wondering if there's a different state of the theater, perhaps a different theater, how it's being developed differently in different places, um, or how that kind of meshes out in your it's a great question. So, yeah, can you guys speak a little bit about um, difference New York versus regional and what those plays are feeling and how those audiences are maybe um, accepting that work? Well, I, I think you hit on the point, right, in that New York is a place where we're trying to get as many people to come as possible that may not even be New Yorkers. I mean, you can't have a hit place because the New Yorkers like it, right? You have to have a bunch of people who are not New Yorkers come here. And, and and watch the play. So that means that you have to reach across what you think the rest of the world or the rest of the country want. And that sometimes dumbs down the work. It sometimes removes some of the most dangerous work to the margins. And I think that if you, like, uh, I mean, I've worked in Chicago a lot, and there is a sort of, like, old boys network there. There's a, like, let's go into this storefront and let's put on, on a play in a way. And that also can be limiting in, in many ways. But uh, I think the idea that what you were talking about, that, it, that there is something that is to the community uh, that is uh, very exciting in the regions. I mean, also, you know, I mean, and everyone up here can probably attest to that we make actually more money outside of New York than in New York. New York does not pay as well as the regions. Which is very interesting. So in order to live here, we have to actually seek work outside of the city. 
Right, we have time for maybe one more, so I'm going to, or we have time for one more. I'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping before that happens. Um, after the end of our final brilliant question, um, I'm just going to ask you all that we can exit the theater as swiftly as possible. Um, I know you're going to have the impulse to rush these brilliant minds up here. Um, let them exit um, so we can close the theater and our amazing crew can clean up and go home and do all the things. They have been so fantastic. Thanks, guys, up there. Um, so with that, there's... You know, we'll start the revolution at the bar. Um, yes, last question. There we go. Hello. Hi, I, my name's Troy. I'm an actor, practicing playwright. I come from a small town in Massachusetts, and living in New York City, we're quite incredibly metropolitan. I, I think it's so wonderful. I can hear the world on the stage. Um, I also see fellow theater goers seeing that, and they're like in this bubble of like, we're metropolitan, we're exposed to it. We hear many languages on a subway line. We see all these colors and faces. But coming from an area that isn't that, I know that some of these stories can hit harder and make an impact more so than it would ever make in a metropolitan city. But because of funding and theaters, it seems like all of the work kind of gravitates to these areas, which is wonderful, is access. What do you think we could do as theater artists to bring those stories to those areas where people maybe have never even seen a theater show before or heard a story in a different language or seen people with different identities, genders, races. It's a great question to end on. Um, so to synthesize um, how, you know, we've talked about the difference of forms and different content and the stories that are we're creating right now in New York and maybe how we can get that into other parts of the country and immediately think of Lynn Nottage's play Sweat and the mobile unit and its tour that it went on. Um, do you guys have any thoughts um, about how this work that we're creating here in New York can have a healthy life outside of New York? I mean, I feel like if you're in those other cities, bring it there, right? If they're at license, you know, do, do those shows. If you know folks that run theaters in those cities, like, say, oh my god, you, there's this really exciting piece I just saw at Club Thumb, like, you should read it. I mean, just let folks in those communities know about it and try to push it that way. And if you're in that community yourself, like, do a play. And there are, like, in, as a new play network, uh, there are sort of places online where people are putting their plays that anyone in the country can go and find plays, uh, and, and that may be different from what they're used to seeing. So there are those resources. Uh, and American theater also tells you about basically everything that's going on in theater, so that's also a resource at TCG. Right, and as our final note, I'll just put all of our panelists on the spot. And if you guys could make a wish list of one or two things that you would like to see on stage or change about how plays are made, like what is your wish list right now? Well, I have a wish list. <laughs> but, uh, my wish is just a challenge. Uh, and I would challenge every living white playwright to write a play with a part written for the lead to be a person of color. And not a part that a person of color could play, but that is designated for a person of color to play it. Um, I think that would be actually a wish that I would love to, because I've written certainly characters that are designated for white folks to play, 
right? Um, but I would love to see that, that uh, the players who are being the most produced to actually go, oh no, I'm going to demand that this is an Asian woman in the play. Um, I feel, um, I, I, um, because this, this play that I did in the fall had the first all-female, um, design team on Broadway, and I talked about it a lot, and I am sick of, yes, I'm very proud of it, and also I'm really sick of firsts, and I would like to be done with firsts, um, I, um, uh, feel like there is, there are a lot of firsts still to come. Um, I want them to come now, and then I want to not talk about firsts anymore. That's my wish. I feel like I would love to see a world where more directors of color are having opportunities to direct shows that aren't only by writers of color. Like, if there's a Shakespeare or a, a Tennessee Williams or whatnot, where it's not just, hi, we're, we're the other, we're giving you this other. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I think there are more dogs on stage, too. That's well, that, that's often, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, and. I, I'm going to say the one that everybody's always saying, but I do wish the ticket prices were lower. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and I, I, because it's just, it's such an old refrain, but yeah, I mean, I was actually just scrolling through some ticket prices today on, on like the Today Ticks thing, and you were just noticing what the lowest prices were there. You know, it's, it, it, it's, theater's going to, you know, cut itself off from the rest of the world if it doesn't, if we can't figure out a way to fix that problem. So. Yeah. It's a great note to end it on. Everyone, thank you so much for coming out tonight.